Let's uh, hear God speak his word this morning. This is from Luke, the 12th chapter, verses 35 through 56. And this is... Jesus speaking to his disciples. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk, The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided. Three against two, and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son, and son against father. Mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, 
A shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky. But why do you not know how to interpret the present time? This is the word of the Lord. As we get ready to dive in here, I'm going to apologize in advance that I had two nights in a row of kids up in the middle of the night with issues. So if I yawn, it is not y'all's fault. (laughs) But um, let's pray and turn to God's word. Lord Jesus Christ, be with us as we sit under the authority of your word. Even though we're sinful people, speak through me, though I'm a sinful man. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my salvation. Amen. So this is, in the Gospel of Luke, the first of several challenging sections where Jesus talks about his return and his coming judgment. And right up front, I just want to name that regardless of whether you're a Christian or not in our world, part of what Jesus says here is true, even though we don't like to talk about it. Regardless of what you believe about Jesus. And that is that every one of our lives is a story with a fixed number of pages, and we don't know how many pages are left. It's true for all of us. Every one of our lives is a story with a fixed number of pages, and we don't know how many are left. This could be the last one. And I say that because that part of what Jesus is saying is not unique to Christianity, but it seems like it's the part that most people fixate on when they talk about the idea of Jesus returning. That what they love to talk about is sort of when's it going to happen, right? And some people have very definite ideas about when it's going to happen. And other people are like, no, you can't know the day or the hour, but they still want to stress that, um, you know, that, that, that it could happen this afternoon. You could be going about your business and Jesus could return and your life could be over. And all of that is true, but I've always felt like focusing on that actually misses the point because even if Jesus wasn't coming back, this afternoon your life could be over. That part is not actually something that requires Christianity to tell us. We all have to face the reality that our lives are uncertain and that we don't know how many pages are left. Instead, what what Jesus says here, what it's supposed to teach us is not the uncertainty of our futures, but rather the significance of our present. That what Jesus is really trying to teach us when he talks about his return and the final judgment is the unbelievable eternal significance of today and of our lives right now. And it's really important for us to hear that, I think, because a great deal of sin for Christians rests in our failure to understand the significance of our lives, to believe that they matter less than they actually do, and so to not engage with them in ways that honor Jesus. And as I was thinking about that fact, I just found myself all week thinking about this sermon that I heard as a young man that in so many ways taught me to think about that. It was, I didn't even hear it live, and it was a sermon by John Piper at the Passion Conference in 2000. It's a very famous sermon for, like, people in my generation. It impacted a lot of us, including me. But what I remember is Piper gets up, and 
and he says, first he's like, look, all of us are going to say, like, we want our lives to be significant, we want our lives to matter, we want our lives to make a difference, but the problem is that for most of us, that's not actually true. That we don't actually want significant lives, we would happily settle for smaller things, just lives where people like us, lives where we have a nice spouse, and nice kids, and a nice car, and a nice life, and no hell when we die, and as long as we get that stuff, it doesn't really matter to us whether we do anything significant. And Piper said, that is a tragedy in the making. And then he starts talking about how a couple weeks before, they had just gotten news at, uh, at his church of these two women from the church that were missionaries that had both passed away. They were both in their 80s in Cameroon. One of them, her whole life, never married or anything, had lived serving the poor and spreading the gospel in Cameroon. The other one... Um, had, was widowed and retired, was a doctor, and moved there um, after that to, to live there. And they, both in their 80s, still ministering there, brakes went out on their car, went off a cliff, and died. And he said, is that a tragedy? It's like, no, it's not a tragedy. In fact, that's glory to see those women living lives that way. He says, I'll tell you what a tragedy is. And the rest of this, I'm just going to give you in Piper's words, because this is fire, and I (laughs) don't—I want a little cover. But he pulls out a Reader's Digest and and opens it up and says, let me read you a tragedy. He says, Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler playing softball and collecting shells. Still Piper's words. That— is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. That American dream of a nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement, collecting shells as the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account for what you did. Here it is, Lord, my shell collection. I've got a nice swing. And look at my boat. Don't waste your life. Don't waste it. That sermon and what he said after that um, deeply impacted me. And in many ways is one of the things that caused me to pursue the life that I have. And I was thinking about it as I sat with this text because I'm just mindful of the fact that I've got only a few sermons left here at Kish got seven sermons, actually, and the last five are going to intentionally be sort of a sermon series on some final reflections and encouragements for us, but I felt the weight of that this morning, and so I just want to take this morning from this text to plead with you that embrace the significance of living for Jesus, and don't waste it. Don't waste our lives. And out of that, I just, from this text, want to point out two things. The first one is hard, and the second one is encouraging. I always feel the need to say that up front. But the the hard one is that our lives will be judged, and then we'll have an encouraging one in a minute. But first, our lives will be judged. Pick up in verse 41. We'll look at the first story in a minute. But here, Peter says, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And so Jesus has just given these warnings about the reality of his return and how we need to be ready for the return. And Peter's like, so hold on a minute. Are you saying this to us, Jesus, or is it for, like, the crowds that are gathered around here? And probably he's asking that because Peter feels a little nervous. Because he's like, wait wait a minute, like, 
we're the disciples, right? We're, you know, we're the, like, insiders. We're the people that are most faithful, closest to you. Like, we're not the ones who are in danger here, right? (laughs) This is for those people out there. So watch how Jesus responds. First, he says, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? So Jesus says, Who is the faithful and wise manager, right? And it's a rhetorical question because he's already been clear and scriptures are clear that this image is an image that on one level applies to all of us. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but that image of a, if you've ever heard the term stewardship, that comes from the term steward, which means household manager. And it's the fact that scripture repeatedly uses this image of saying the way that the world works is that creation is like God's household. He's, you know, the master, the guy who owns everything. And what he does is that he takes each of us and takes some part of that household and puts us in authority over it. He says, you, you know, these are your kids. This is your home. This is your life. These are the relationships you have. This is the place you live. You're my steward. You're my household manager over this part of what I'm giving you. So that's for all of us on one level true. But it's also already starting to challenge Peter because if anybody is going to be looked at and said, you're like a household manager for the Lord overseeing his other servants, it's Peter and the other disciples as they prepare to be apostles. So it is for everyone. Yes, it's for all, but it especially applies in a sense to Peter. So Jesus gives this image of this household manager, and then he first gives encouragement. He says, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions— And we're going to talk about that encouragement in a minute. That's part of the the second point. But then he gives this word of warning. He says, But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk, and the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. That is stern and scary stuff. Saying, if we, as God's stewards, as God's household managers, instead develop the attitude that says that this stuff is mine, not God's, and if we abuse and hurt the other people that God has entrusted us with authority over, that there is real eternal risk that we're taking with our lives. And we'll talk about the hardness in a minute, but let's finish. Then Jesus says, And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Which is to say, now Jesus is directly speaking to Peter's question, and he's turning Peter's assumptions on the head. What Peter wants to say is like, Jesus, like, The blessings are mostly for us, right? And the judgment is mostly for those people out there that don't know anything. You know, like, we're the disciples. We have your word. We're close to you. So we're not—we're the ones least in danger of judgment. And what Jesus says is actually, it's the other way around. That you are, in some sense, the ones most in danger of judgment. From those that have much, much will be required. And while there is also judgment for those, you know, those outsiders, those people out there, that it is, in a real sense, less severe. So yeah, that's hard. (laughs) And we can really struggle to know how to process that, right? Especially because 
you've been around the church, what you're wrestling with is like, but wait a minute, like, what about God's mercy? And aren't we saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone? And isn't it Christ's righteousness that covers our sins that we hope for for salvation? And shouldn't we not fear God's judgment in that sense? All of that is true. But the thing about texts like this one is that Jesus is clearly giving a warning about judgment that is especially for his disciples. That it's not aimed at outsiders. So how do you fit those things together? Here's what I want to suggest. I'll give you the the big picture answer up front, and then we'll talk about it. In Christianity, it's that God's grace can be relied upon, but God's grace can never be presumed upon. God's grace can be relied upon, but it must never be presumed upon. So on the one hand, it can be relied upon, which is to say that all of us as Christians will struggle with indwelling sin. Every one of us, from now until the day that we die, as long as we're in the flesh, will still wrestle with sin and at times fall into it. I mean, it is my habit most nights, not every night, and that's one of the things I have to confess, but most nights, you know, I try to sit down and do kind of examining prayer at the end of the day, and part of that is thinking through the day and reflecting on whether there's ways that I've sinned to confess them to God. And I always have ample stuff, right? Like, in terms of things I've thought and things I've said— things I failed to do and things I've done, it is never hard for me to come up with ways that I have failed to follow Jesus. All of us will wrestle with indwelling sin, and to that reality, Scripture speaks the good news of God's grace. It says that we can rely on the grace of God rather than our ability to overcome our own struggles with sin. That God welcomes us and embraces us and pardons us every day because of Jesus and because of his grace, and we can rely on that. But there's another thing that we can do with God's grace, and that is that we can use it as an excuse for sin, and so presume upon it. That we can use people and things in the world and abuse people and things in the world and um, not walk as God calls us and say to ourselves, but I'm fine. Like, you know, I'm one of God's people. God is gracious. He loves me. There's no judgment that's going to come on me. And scripture gives very stern warnings about that attitude. Let me just read you one from Hebrews chapter 10. The author of Hebrews says this. He says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, which is a way of saying, if we say, you know, God is gracious, I'm just going to go on sinning and not try, you know, not care. He says, if that happens, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of of the living God. So true grace always leads to repentance and seeking to serve God. That's the result of God's real grace, always. It always leads to repenting of our sin and seeking to serve God. But there is a false grace in which we don't repent and we use it to actually serve our own sin. A grace we use to serve our own sin. And I have 
you, you can see it like there's public, you know, you think about like the pastors, right, who talk about, you know, their closeness to God as a way to kind of serve their own appetites. Or you think about the way abusers will twist scripture and use it to try to serve their own desires to dominate and oppress other people. And for all of us, man, it, we as Christians, we can, we can use God's grace as an excuse to not confront our sin and to continue in it. We can... Um, We can use God's grace to kind of serve our worldly desires and interests rather than trying to serve him. I mean, it is it is that reality that I've seen in others where I I mean I know people who are so certain (laughs) that they that they belong to Jesus and will be saved and and there's just a part of me that trembles because I just want to say to them I see no evidence of that in your life at all like and and it's true of my own heart in little ways too. That that is so easily a temptation for me, right? To excuse those things, to say, it's okay. God is gracious. I don't need to try to change. While God is love and gracious, it is also true that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So how do you balance those realities? What do you, what do, you do with that? Here's what I want to suggest. I think that all of our hearts exist on a spectrum and we need to, to kind of first figure out where we are at on that spectrum. So on one end of the spectrum, you are, is people who are just so constantly broken by their sin and in fear of God's judgment and trembling before God in his holiness. And what those people need to hear is the grace can be relied upon, right? Like, they just need to be soaked in that reality that God loves them unconditionally and has covered their sin and welcomes and pardons them. But on the other side of the spectrum— there are people who feel no grief for sin and no fearfulness of God's judgment and are fully confident continuing in their rebellion against God while claiming his name. And if that's you, if you rarely or never tremble in those ways, then while ultimately you need to hear that message of grace too, the only way you're going to get there is first by learning and experiencing that real appropriate fearfulness of God. We need to wrestle with that because there are Christians in great danger of presuming on God's grace in a way that will lead them astray. Jesus believed that. He talks about it a lot. He talks about it here, or in Matthew 25, right? The really famous image he gives where there's the judgment seat of God and the sheep and the goats, right? When, when he pictures that, like, then the sheep are brought into eternal life and the goats are sent away to eternal punishment. That's not an image for people who say they're Christians and people who say they don't. The the goats aren't like atheists and Muslims. Both groups are Christians. Both groups say to to God, Lord, Lord, didn't we worship you and claim your name and do these miracles in your name? But yet to some of them, God says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of evil. We need that real soberness. And like I said, that's the hard truth. But what I want you to understand out of all of that is that what Jesus is trying to say in all of that is, is to remind us of the significance of this life. (laughs) That what we make of Jesus in this life, and whether we truly from the heart repent and cast ourselves on him and belong to him, whether we do that or not, matters deeply and eternally. It is significant. And coasting through life, presuming on God's grace, and not feeling that weight is, is not good for us. So that's the hard truth. But then there's another truth Jesus is saying too, the encouraging one. And that is that our lives are also significant in the sense that our labor will be rewarded. Our labor will be rewarded. 
While these stories contain warnings of judgment, they also have repeated promises of blessing. First, Jesus tells us that faithfulness is rewarded. In that first story, he pictures these servants who have a master at a wedding feast. Wedding feasts in the ancient world were these huge parties that could go for days at a time. But it's these servants that are waiting up so that when the master comes home, they'll be alert and ready. And he says, in verse 38, he says, If the master comes in the second watch, or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. And so, ancient Jews divided the night into three watches, like three-thirds. And so Jesus is saying, even if it's two in the morning, even if it's 5.30 in the morning before he comes home, those servants that are alert will receive blessing, which is an image of faithfulness, of persevering, even as you wait for a long time for the master to return. And Jesus says that will be greatly rewarded. In verse 37, he says, blessed are those servants, whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. That's a remarkable image. That's one of those times where the parable is clearly not about earthly masters, right? Because no earthly master is going to actually say, you stayed up to welcome me, like, sit down and let me serve you breakfast. But, But Jesus is saying that's actually God's attitude of delight in those that he saves. Faithfulness is rewarded, and stewardship is rewarded. That's what we read before, talking about how we're stewards. Jesus says, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. So as we're faithful to steward the things that God gives us, he will also bless us and give us more to steward. And it's important to say that both of those blessings, while yes, There's ways we can be blessed in this life. Both of those are ultimately about the age to come, right? That that Jesus recognizes that this age is one of labor and struggle and suffering. But he's saying that labor will be rewarded. He's clear about the suffering. I mean, there's this whole, if you pick up in verse 51, Jesus starts talking about, he says, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided. Three against two, and two against three. And then he lists all these different family relationships divided, which is Jesus' way of saying, look, like, I'm not coming so that you have an easy life now. In fact, there's ways that I'm going to cause more brokenness and challenge and chaos in your life. And he uses the image, the very real image for some of us, of the way families can be divided by the gospel, which is hard for us and even harder for his first hearers in a world where family meant everything. So he recognizes that. But again, he's promising that as we persevere faithfully in that suffering, that it will be rewarded. Or one other way he images that, in verse 50, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. The baptism Jesus is talking about there is his death. Uh, Death is an image or, I mean, baptism is an image of death, and in fact, part of our baptisms are a reminder of that dying with Christ, Scripture tells us, in places like Romans 6. But baptism is always an image of death and resurrection, which is why Jesus is in great distress until his is accomplished. So his own life has that pattern of labor and struggle and suffering and then resurrection and blessing, and so he is promising us that same Here's how I think we need to hear that promise of reward. What it is meant to do is speak to us the significance, not just of that big picture question of what we do with Jesus, 
which is what we talked about under judgment. But it's also meant to speak to every little picture question that we face in our lives. And here's what I mean. I've heard a bunch of preachers say this thing that I kind of hate. And so I apologize in advance if you like this or have said this. But what, they, what, what, I, what I hear in different ways is they try to use this illustration where they say, your life is like a test. And on this test, it's like you're in school, there's only one question. And the question is, will you believe in Jesus? Yes or no? And if you make the right answer, then you'll receive eternal life. If you make the wrong answer, you go to hell. And that's all that matters. Like, that is the question that matters in your life. Here's my issue with that. I get what it's trying to say, because as we just said, what you make of Jesus in this life has eternal ramifications, right? And is a real eternal life or eternal punishment kind of question. That's true. But it also has a lot of issues, like it makes God seem really arbitrary and stuff. But mainly what it, what it does is it diminishes the value of all of the other choices that we are called to make in this life. And it's those choices that Jesus stresses are being rewarded, right? You think about the image of being that household manager. I mean, what Jesus is saying is like, you're in middle management, right? And I've been in middle management, and it's not like big, exciting, earth-shaking decisions that you're making. It's very mundane, ordinary, every day, right? Like, you know, Jesus says here, it's, it's managing the other servants and making sure they get fed and do their work. Like, that's, that's what Jesus is talking about. He's saying that is the sort of thing that is rewarded. And we need to embrace that because too many Christians have that kind of, they've heard that kind of your life is a test image in a way that leaves them wondering, well, then what do I do with the rest of it, right? Like, there's all this stuff in my day that isn't just me deciding to follow Jesus. And yeah, I mean, maybe I also, like, share the good news with other people, but still, that's like a tiny slice of my life. Does the rest of it matter? And what Jesus is saying is, yes, that all of that labor will be rewarded. All of that labor, that daily labor, is not in vain. The stories of our lives are mostly made up of pages full of boring stuff. Like, I mean, yes, there are weddings and funerals and great, you know, moments of joy and tragedy, but mostly it's like driving between things and cooking meals and doing laundry and sleeping and, you know, it's, it's boring, mundane stuff. Do you realize that the things that God rewards and celebrates at his judgment are faithful stewardship in those boring, mundane things? <laughs> that those are the things that will ultimately reap eternal blessings for us as we are faithful in them. I think about parenting and this reality a lot because, I mean, like all of life, parenting is mostly about doing boring, everyday stuff, right? I mean, yes, being a good parent involves the, like, big, dramatic, like, here's this, this pivotal conversation or, you know, like, taking your kid to the emergency room, things like that. But mostly, it is setting a faithful example for them and showing them love in everyday ways and having intentional conversations that you feel like don't do anything because they're like, okay, great, and then they go off to do their own thing. But all of us recognize on some level that the things that shape kids, right, are those boring things. It's being faithful with your kids in those boring things, which is why as a parent I need to value that. But it's also why God values that. And not just in parenting, but in every part of life. That, that, that like when scripture talks about us working for the Lord, that's God's way of saying that when you go to your job and you faithfully each day do that to my glory, right? Not just that you tell your coworkers about Jesus at the water cooler, which is great, do that too, but just by, by doing the task that God's given you for today, 
that God is actually delighted in and blesses faithfulness in that. And that's true for all of our lives. I mean, I just have to name, because I was thinking about that John Piper sermon, right? Um, (laughs) This is touchy, I know, given my age, but I mean, that's, retirement is one of those places where you have to reckon with that for some of us, right? That, I mean, that it is good to rest from your work, right? Your worldly vocation when you're at a point where you can financially do it. That's good and fine, but that, that you don't get to rest from God's calling to faithfully serve him in the world just because you turn 65, right? That, that each day of your life until we die is meant to be a day that we use to steward and serve for God. And, and again, it's the boring things, right? It's not that you have to move to Cameroon when you're 65 <laughs> to do missions work, but it's that we're still called at each point in our life to do that. And also that's true um, for, 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 I think about the, our, our younger people, like, you know, kids and teenagers. That's part of their calling too, right? It's so easy to have this idea that like, you know, like, the, the labor God wants is from the age of, like, 23 to 65. <laughs> and, and nothing on either side of that matters. But that's not biblical either. That it is daily faithfulness in those boring parts of life, at every age and every stage, that God blesses. The author Annie Dillard famously comments, How we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. I've always loved that. How we spend our days is, of course the way we end up spending our lives. And to that, Jesus would simply add that therefore how we spend our days also echoes into eternity. So that's my plea for us this morning. Embrace the significance of our lives. Don't waste them. Embrace them big picture. Cast yourself on Jesus and truly know him and embrace him and embrace the significance of each of the individual days and every part of them. So I thought of all of that, um, I found myself thinking again, in that same sermon by Piper, he later quotes this poem by C.T. Studd, and I'm going to go ahead and just read part of that poem to you. Studd says, Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done, then in that day my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep. In joy or sorrow thy word to keep. Faithful and true whate'er the strife. Pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life. Yes, only one. Now let me say thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the, I'll hear the call, I know I'll say twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That is my plea to us, friends. And that's Jesus' plea. To be mindful of that today and every day. Whether we are 8 or 80, whether we are doing exciting or everyday tasks, that this is the life he has given us. This is the story of our lives, and we don't know how many pages there are. But that we are called to be faithful in this one. And embrace the significance of it. That only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would move on our hearts.
convict us with, with the importance and significance of our calling. Father, I acknowledge to you that it is so easy for me, for all of us, in the dailiness of life, in the lies of sin in the flesh, in so many ways, to treat today as less important, less meaningful than it is, to waste it. And I confess that as we do that over the course of our lives, what we find is an entire life leaked away and wasted. But Lord, I give you thanks that you have not called us to such trivialities, but you have called us to do things of true, lasting significance that will echo into eternity and into the age to come. And I pray that you would give us hearts that long for such significance and seek to live it out. Father, I pray that you would give us a mindfulness of our sin, that we would rest on your grace but never presume upon it. And I pray that you would give us a mindfulness of our calling in this day and the realities of the blessings that you give us and the delight you take as we're faithful in it. pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.